With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Oh, the shark bait has such teeth there. And it shows them pearly white. Just a jack. So, welcome everybody to this latest episode of Macklin's Take with me, Andy Clark, and Matt Macklin joining you as always. Hope everybody is well. We have had some fairly big announcements in terms of fight nights that will be coming up over the next few months in recent days. And after a slowish start to the year, for understandable reasons, things are really beginning to pick up. So, there's plenty. To look forward to. And this week, of course, on Saturday night, we've got the rematch between Dillian White and Alexander Povetkin. The Rumble on the Rock, as it's been imaginatively titled. So very much looking forward to that one. And we will be all over that during the course of this week. Starting with uh, a podcast today, of course, which we recorded at the end of last week. And we'll be doing at least one more. And there'll be other stuff going up on YouTube too. So if you haven't managed to check out the Macklin's Take YouTube channel, then please do go and have a look. And if you could click subscribe, then that always helps as well. So with a big heavyweight clash looming on the weekend, we decided what better way to uh, start the week than to recruit a heavyweight trainer, somebody who's been at the top of the sport for for a long time, who we've seen plenty this year already, actually, uh, in corners and also joining us for some punditry on Sky. It's Adam Booth. Adam, how are you doing? Afternoon. I'm good. How are you? Yeah, very well, thanks. Very well, thanks. Looking forward to this. I'll introduce the subject of it in just uh, uh, in just uh, a minute because this is kind of a, a hybrid between the deep dives we've been doing and also the make or break series we've been doing. I'll just explain. I'll just explain to you and to anyone who's joining us for the first time what those series have been about. So the deep dives have seen us talk to observers in general about big fights. So we had Bunsey on about Ben Eubank. Uh, we had Tim May from Columbus on about Mike Tyson against Buster Douglas. And then we've gone into those fights in real detail. The make or breaks have been when we've spoken to fighters so far about fights 
pivotal fights in their careers, fights that had they not won them, then their careers would not have been the same. Not necessarily fights that are viewed by the public as being their biggest, but maybe the most crucial. So with Carl Froch, we did the the defence against Jermaine Taylor. With Josh Warrington, we centred him mostly on his early title wins away from home for English and Commonwealth titles. So that's what we'll be doing today. And we will be homing in on uh, David Hayes' fight against Sean Mark Mormet because we've always found that to be a to be a really, really interesting one. And actually, before we start, one thing I noticed, Matt, is that um, I've been listening back, back to some recent podcasts or some old podcasts over the course of the last week or so, just, just looking to tighten up our game. You know, it's all about it's all about marginal gains on, on Macklin's take. I think you'll agree with that. And it did come to my attention that I generally, you know, at this stage of the podcast, I ask the guests how they are and I don't really say anything to you. And, and I don't really bring you in for sometimes... 10 minutes, it just seemed like a diabolical liberty. So how are you? How are you, Macklin? Well, apart from, you know, looking like a hippie because I need the barbers, other than that, I can't complain. <laughs> good, good. We've got very different backdrops for this. Adam was just saying he's gone for the Beirut boxing gym look because he's kind of ringside um, in his uh, in his HQ. Macklin's in the corner of the chapel in his sprawling Solihull mansion, as usual. Uh, and I've situated myself uh, in front of the one and only bookcase in our house to try and Can make myself Can you explain the owl, please? Can you explain the owl? So the just, over, just over my right shoulder, there's an owl. There's no real explanation for the owl other than I am a fan of owls. Why? He's subconsciously trying to portray the fact that he's a wise old owl. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, undoubtedly, that is part of the reason that, that, I'm, that I'm attracted to owls. But I, I don't know, really. I just I just like owls. I remember going it's, to it's London not Zoo. because you spend your life cooing in the dark. <laughs> <laughs> A psychologist could have an absolute field day with this. I just like owls. I think they're cool. Uh, and I think it's probably because they, they have this reputation for being I've now got this image of I've now got this image of an owl wearing a long leather coat like shaft because you think they're cool. <laughs> Well, that, you know, I don't think that would be a bad look. I'll be honest. I don't think that would be a bad look at all. Um, we've got slightly off the subject. Um, so I will, introduce a, I will introduce a parliamentary procedure at this point and steer us back on back on course. So I, don't, I worry, don't worry, Adam. He's, he's constantly steering me back. I'm an absolute master at going off on a mad tangent. <laughs> right. I'm wearing, I'm wearing roller skates on this one, then. So let's... Um, Let's talk David Hay against Sean Mark Mormek. We did get into this with David in October ahead of the fight with Usyk and Chisora. And he wasn't unwilling to talk about it, but he was in full salesman mode at that point. And really any question we asked, he managed to veer it back round to why everybody should buy the pay-per-view on the, on the Saturday. It was, it was very skillful stuff, I have to say. But um, <laughs> this fight's always really intrigued me. And we will we'll trace through his, his career in, in a little bit just to bring us up to the to the fight itself and the circumstances around it. But I, I described the kind of make or break premise there. Yourself and David, at that point, you were very much a, a pair. Your fortunes were very much intertwined. So would you say that this was that fight against Mormek? It was a make or break, not just for the fighter, but for the, for the both of you, given what you'd been through up until that point and what you wanted to go on and achieve? I don't think we didn't for one moment, think of it as a make-or-break fight. It was the first world championship against the WBA, WBC champion in his backyard, a Don King fighter in Paris. Um, and as a, as a fighter, you dream of becoming world champion. 
as a coach, your ultimate ambition is to be a coach at that level. So be, it being make or break wasn't a thought in our mind. It was, it was genuinely a, a period of change and excitement. And we deliberately relocated ourselves to Northern Cyprus um, to eliminate any possible distractions or stresses that could be around us specifically to get ready for that fight. Well, the build-up was was interesting. Uh, I've got to tip my hat to Elliot Wurzel at this point because I read Making Hay a while ago and I reread it. Uh, bits of it yesterday in preparation for this. It's a terrific book. Uh, he's written another really good one called Dog Round. So if you're not familiar with those two, then, then I would urge you to go out and get them. Uh, it's just it's a great kind of tableau of, of, of the career and, and some good detail from, from that, from that camp. But before we go further, what we usually do at this stage is that me and Matt will kind of fill people in on, on where we were and what we were doing with regard to this fight. Now, the strange thing about this fight, and, and this will be a theme is that it went under the radar at the time and somehow has remained under the radar since because going away to a unified champion's backyard and relieving him of multiple world titles is an enormous achievement i was thinking this morning about fighters who have managed to do this british fighters you've got lloyd hunnigan of course against don curry and what was possibly the best ever win by a british fighter home or away there's there's that's a whole other podcast but it but it's definitely up there lennox lewis did it against evander holyfield when he unified and beat holyfield the the second time around Anthony Joshua in the rematch against Andy Ruiz, that's slightly different because that was on, on neutral on neutral turf. So really you're looking at, off the top of my head, I can't think of any others, you're looking at Hunnigan, Lewis and Hay. Uh, and, and, and Matt, I remember watching Calzaghe Kessler the week before and I remember the build-up really kind of beginning to roll for Hatton Mayweather, which was a few weeks afterwards. And I was aware that this was happening, this fight, but I didn't actually watch it on the night because it ended up on Satanta, I think, at short notice. I didn't have Satanta. And I was just kind of looking out for the result. It was, it was, it was bizarre, wasn't it? How kind of little attention it seemed to it seemed to attract. Boxing fans knew about it, but it didn't hit that wider sporting mainstream in the same way that those two other fights did. Yeah, I mean, for me. I was, you know, I go way back with David Hay from my, my first ever squad at Crystal Palace. I was 17 and David was, you know, I think a light heavyweight back then. So, you know, we go back a, a way back. So I always followed his career as, as a professional and that, you know, I believed in him and I believed he was going to go over there and, and win the fight. But it, I think you're right. I think David Hay against Warmack and also Frutch against Jermaine Taylor, although Frutch was the defending champion, I'm probably right up there with two of the best away from home wins from British fighters that really don't get the credit they deserve because they didn't get the television or the profile or the, or the media interest at the time, for whatever reason. And they've kind, they're kind of forgotten about or, or just they never really, I don't know, they don't get spoken about in the terms that really they should do because they were magnificent wins. I mean, David Hay actually got off the floor to win that fight by stoppage as well. So, you know, it's right up there with, with, when you talk about world title wins from, from, from a fighter from the UK and especially away from home. I mean, it, it really is right up there. But it's, um, I mean, Adam can obviously go into way more detail. But from my point of view, it was something that I boxed amateur with for England. We were friends. 
And, you know, I was really rooting for him. And I, and I can't remember the, uh, yeah, it did end up on Satanto. Did it, was it live on Satanto? It was delayed, replayed? I can't even remember, to be honest. But it was, uh, it was a fight that just completely went under the radar. But it's probably one of his biggest or certainly most important wins of his career because it set up everything that came after it. It was it was absolutely pivotal. And and Adam, from from your yours and David's point of view, obviously you're you're cocooned in the in the build up. You've got your eyes focused firmly on, on the prize. But were you kind of aware that this was this seemed to be escaping people's attention? <clears throat> the reason why I ended up on Satanta is because uh, David and I initially were working directly with the BBC. Uh, the BBC then withdrew from boxing and. Uh, David and I made a conscious decision to stay promotionally free. We were offered more money and longer-term contracts to stay with certain promoters in the in, in the lead in the fights leading up to the world title fight. But the whole thing was about rolling the dice to keep the independence when he became successful, because we believed that that was the way of of, of doing it. That, that we were going to do it differently, and it was you know high-risk, high-reward strategy. So we were, it was a donking promotion. We had already turned down bigger money to sign promotional agreements with other promoters, which meant that uh, donking promotions, I think, did a deal to, with, with someone in the UK for the, for the broadcast rights. So Sky couldn't pick it up. It was picked up by Satanta. At the time, Satanta was very new in the UK. No one had, no one really had the channel. Um, and that's why it went under the radar. It went under the radar because David decided that he wanted to stay promotionally free, win the world title, and then capitalise on it. It was, it was a roll of the dice that, that paid off. It was. It was. And, and I think that was something that, that kind of marked you out, the, the, the pair of you from the beginning, really, as, as being long-term strategists from a business point of view as well as a boxing point of view. So if we kind of roll it back, we um, Matt mentioned the amateurs there. David got a silver medal at the World Championships in 2001, uh, lost the final against Orlenia Solis, which is a really interesting fight to watch, actually. Uh, if people haven't seen that, go back and go back and have a look at that. And then the Commonwealth Games came. He went out earlier than than expected and, and the decision taken at that point was that he wouldn't hang around another two years and, and think about the the Olympic Games your relationship had been going for a good while by that point you met down at Fitzroy Lodge I, I believe was the was the beginning of it all so was was that were you were you a big part of that decision for him to to turn pro when he did rather than stay on for the Olympics um after the world championships it was um the only reason why he decided to stay on to the Commonwealth Games is that they were in Manchester. And so we believed that there would be more profile um, raising because his world championship silver medal, I think, was on it was on a, it was on a it wasn't as it wasn't like a it wasn't like a Commonwealth Games or Olympic Games. Although it, it, it cemented his sort of level as an amateur, as an elite amateur, we thought the Commonwealth Games would be the commercial element. Um, but he injured his bicep in his first fight and he tore quite a few of the fibers so from the moment that that injury happened there was no other no other decision other than turning professional I mean Matt that 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 final against Elise you know he he very nearly got a he wasn't far away from getting a gold medal there and he would have been the first English um 
GB Mail to do that. Frankie Gavin did it six years later because he he absolutely belted Solis in about the first thirty seconds, and and he was given a standing count. And and in a pro boxing ring, when the referee doesn't jump in for a standing count, and if he'd been allowed to follow up, then he then he could well have won. And and he he really was. He was he was. Um, he was right up there as an amateur. People think about his pro career generally, David Hay, but probably because he didn't go to the Olympics. But as an amateur, he was he was the business. Yeah, I mean, you, you, you got to you know nowadays there's a lot of funding in the amateur game. They get sent to a lot of tournaments. There's, there's more spotlight on their judges. Back then, you know, the, these guys like David Hay and Carl Fritz that went to Olympic qualifiers and didn't even qualify for the Olympics. They were boxing guys from say Belarus. And you had all the East Europeans just sticking together. It was almost impossible to get a decision. I remember David A telling me, he, I can't remember which fight it was, but he basically punched this guy from pillar to post to the extent that he couldn't box in the next fight. And he lost something like 12-1 on the computer. You know, you know don't hold me to the facts of the scores, but it was something along those lines. And it's like, I mean, how are you supposed to get a decision for something like that? I mean, to, to be honest, that was one of the things that put... I mean, I turned pro quite young. In fact, I remember being down in the gym in Leicester Square, I think it is, called the Third Space, which Adam had a room there and he was training David out of it. And I remember, I think he was, me and, me and Carl Frotch were down at the Lennox Lewis Academy spending a weekend. Me, Kennedy was trying to sign the pair of us. I'd gone down with Rob McCrack and Carl had met us down there. He'd got the train down. And um, we, 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 we went into Leicester Square for the day. We met up with David Hay. And I think Adam and David were having a meeting with Dean Powell, who was... I think fronting or was the boxing guy to do with, I think, was it Lion or, or it was Lennox Lewis's promotional outfit with the BBC. And, but as I say, I remember like they, at that point, I think Carl was 25. He'd, you know, he'd won the bronze medal in the world championships. David was, had won the silver medalist. But as Adam says, then with the Commonwealth Games being in Manchester, only another year down the line from a profile building point of view, you know, you're going to be on terrestrial television for a week or two weeks. And, you know, listen, David would have been absolutely odds on to win the gold medal and the heavyweight. So, you know, it was a no-brainer really from that point of view. From from my point of view, I'd, you know, I should have gone to the World Championships in Belfast. But in the ABA final, I, I damaged my uh, left hand, so I couldn't go to that. And then it, I don't know, I, 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 I had no intentions of turning professional. It all just happened so quick. But, you know, obviously, David had Adam. It was very kind of strategic in what how they were making their moves about, you know, setting things out really, you know, and having a proper plan and moving towards that. Um, but I've gone off key now. So Adam, when it, when it happened and, and um, you turned professional, the, the, the pair of you kind of turned professional and, and it was, it was the pair of you turning professional together, wasn't it? Because, you know, he was, as I said to you at the start, your fortunes are very much intertwined. This was something that you were doing together, learning together. Were your philosophies kind of on the same page from the beginning as regards how you were going to try and go about things and what, what the plan was, what the route might be? Well, our, our relationship was kind of um, galvanised a little bit in the amateurs because David was, um, a, I think they call him podium boxer now, right? He was, he was considered a main medal hope, so important for the ABA's or, or GB's funding. But he was training with me, and, and Team GB didn't like that. And we had a meeting up at Crystal Palace, and it was um, a little bit heated. And, and David made the point that when I train here, I win one, I lose one. When I train with Adam, I win all the time. 
And he and it was the first time he'd spoken up. He was still a teenager at the time. And they didn't like that. But that's what we did. We trained together. Uh, when he ended up boxing the World Championships in Belfast, I obviously wasn't a guest and wasn't welcome anywhere near the, the GB squad. So I, I flew out of myself, stayed in the B&B, bought my ticket to every every event that David was boxing. And I actually bought a ticket to every, every, every night of boxing. When David would warm up, he actually ran out the change room, came up into the, into the uh, you know, the concourse where you have like the hot, hot dog vendors and stuff like that. Just before you go into the, into the hall to sit in your seat, there's that, always that little exit, alcove. And we were doing the warm up. He'd run up to me in his kit, warm up on the pads there, then run back down into the change room and then appear in the hall and get into the ring. By the time he boxed Solis, he boxed four times in four days. So our, our, um, exclusion from the establishment and our relationship of thinking, right, well, we're going to, everyone else is just going to be us and we're going to do it our way, kind of carried on into the pros when we were fortunate enough to have an introduction to the BBC where, because Audley, Audley Harrison had opened the door to fighters working directly with the BBC and David was the second one or was the next one to benefit from that. So we had a, we had a direct relationship with the BBC and, and it was, we chose which promoter we worked with on a short-term basis, and that promoter would get the show on the BBC. And, and so, you know, we, we had bargaining power turning professional because we had the broadcaster behind us. And so from the amateurs and from turning pro, it was always about us being separate to what was already established there. Hey, hey, kid. Hey, kids. hey everybody, sitting here with a famous Slovenian philosopher. How are you doing, sir? I am uh, in health, thank you. Are you uh, excited about something? I am excited about this latest uh, CIA-funded venture. A CIA venture? Yes, it's called the Desire and Capital Podcast. Oh, what is it about? I refuse your fascist question. Well, there you have it. Listen to the Desiring Capital Podcast, coming soon to a bourgeois platform near you. On your marks, get set, go! This is so crazy! How was it, how was it for you in, in, in the early days as, as a coach, as an amateur coach, and then, and then when, when the pair of you, you turned pro? Because at that point in time, it's more normal now for people to be able to come through as leading coaches, top coaches, and have that respect from the beginning because they've, they've learned their trade, they've done their due, due diligence without having competed as elite-level athletes. People accept that now a lot more readily. Back then, it wasn't quite as accepted, I don't think. People seem to always look at coaches across all sports and think they need to have competed at a certain level to really know what they're talking about, for people to take them seriously somehow. So was that, I mean, no, how, how, I, dis I disagree. I disagree. It wasn't like that over here because I, I remember back in those days, the coaches that you kind of heard, uh, heard about were Freddie King, who was with um, Barry Hearn. It was Dean Powell, who was with Frank Maloney. Uh, before that, you had Terry Lawless with Frank Bruno. You know, these, these names that I can throw up of coaches that you'll recognize and none of them ever boxed to an elite level. So no, it wasn't, it wasn't the fact that you had to report to an elite level. I boxed as an amateur. It, it was the fact that you had to be part of the industry 
that if you were going to be a coach, it's because you were you were allied to somebody. Or if you were going to be a manager, you had a relationship with people existing in the business. Now, there's a thousand times more coaches than now than there was back then, and, and way more managers as well. Um, the promotional element these days is still almost as limited as it was back then. But in terms of coaches and managers, there's way more now than there was back then. It wasn't, it wasn't a case of, I wasn't an amateur coach. I boxed as an amateur. And then I actually was training um, two, two of my closest friends who we boxed together over the years. And that's Gary Logan and Chris Oko. And they were pros. So I was actually working with them when I first met David. And David was an amateur. So I had my um, pro license as a coach from before I met David. So I could never be an amateur coach with him. But when he turned pro, I became his coach and, and his manager at the same time. And what happened with David that time? Because I remember he was obviously boxed for Fitzroy Lodge for a long time. Then he kind of boxed out of Broad Street Gym. But I'm guessing that was you training him. But he just had to box out of that club because there'd been a fallout with Mick Carney. Is that... Is that, ring a, is that what am I on the right line? Yeah, yeah. Well, it was. It was actually. Uh, I was. I was uh, good friends with Mick Carney, and and I, where I'd broken my leg and I couldn't box anymore, and I, and I went through a period of depression. I'd go down the lodge and I'd be taking guys on the pads, and I said to Mick one day, "Can you just give me two or three fighters that I can just work with alone?" Uh, and there was David Hay, Manus Barber, who's, who's a lifelong friend, and and a middleweight kid called Rob, who cut a nerve in his finger and never actually boxed. So I ended up just training David. And Manus, and that went on for a little while. And David had a few bouts and uh, was learning, you know, certain mistakes that he was making along the way. And then, and then all of a sudden, it was well, I, you can't do that anymore because you're not a lodge coach. So that was it. I left, and, and I said to David, you know, that's how it is. And then uh, a couple of weeks later, David called me and said that he wanted to come and train with me, and that he was prepared to leave the Fitzroy Lodge. So I, he, he resolved that, and then. Uh, Broad Street was the amateur club that he was associated with, but he, but by that point he was beyond um, domestic level, and he was only fighting internationally anyway. So early, early days on the on the pro journey, you go ten or no ten knockouts. Uh, I can't I can't brush over that period though without asking you, how how did it happen that you ended up having a fight at the Playboy Mansion? So, as part of the short-term deals we were doing with the promoters in the in the UK, we did uh, we did one with Lennox Lewis's company. It was uh, headed by a guy called Adrian Ogan, um, and Dean Powell was working for him. Lion Promotions. So we did it. We we signed a contract with them. It was a short-term contract, and one of the things was, I guess it must have been through a contact of Lennox or whatever. But Hugh Hefner once a year would have a, a show on ESPN from his back garden. And uh, probably one of the most surreal experiences I've ever had uh, in boxing was that night at the Playboy Mansion in a ring that was on a one in four slope. Because it, 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 we, we were standing in the ring and the dude that David was fighting was so far below us. On the ring walk, um, his opponent was having a little, little smoke on his way to the ring, shall we say. I'll just leave it like that. His coach comes over to us. As he's as that dude's about to do a ring walk, comes over and pleads with us to get my our guy to take it easy on his guy. So it was all a bit weird. David wins in forty five seconds or whatever it was, and then there was a party that carried on. And I remember, I'll never forget 
I went to get a hot dog because they had these little hot dog stands and I'm standing there waiting for the tongs for the onions or something like that. So I'm looking at the food and the, a dude hands me the tongs. It was James Calm, the actor. Wow. So I've, so I've looked at him, dabbled the, dabbled the tongs into the onions, put the onions on my hot dog, turned around to hand it to the dude behind me, that was Will Smith. <laughs> And so, and 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 honestly, the night got more surreal than that as it went on. So, yeah, uh, the Playboy Mansion's a, a funny little chapter. Oh, it just when you look at the record, you, I knew it happened, but I just kind of just thought, why is no one ever? Why is no one ever asked them about this? I think it's, I think I think it's the only one of his fights that never got televised. Right, right, yeah. I mean, that would make sense. That would make sense. Uh, Vance Man, I think, was the guy he was in with. Um, Fifty-four Vance seconds. Win, Vance Win. That's it. Fifty-four. Fifty-four seconds. I mean, it kind of sounds like a, a more adult version of Fight Camp. Um, Hugh Hefner's back garden rather than Eddie Hearn's. <laughs> yeah, I think back garden is the only comparison you can make there. <laughs> <laughs> well, there was just no way, Matt. There was just absolutely no chance that we could that we could get past that section of the of the journey without asking about that. So, at ten and 010 knockouts, um, then came the fight against against Carl Thompson. I went to that fight actually, and. Didn't turn out the way the way that you you wanted it to uh, that night, like like it did with Josh against David Avanesian a few weeks ago. People drew parallels in the immediate aftermath of of that fight between between the two. So how how was that? How was can that? I, can to... I say a little something here? Sure. This is something I haven't said to anyone other than Josh, and that is that the similarities and the coincidences of David Hayes' loss to Carl Thompson and Josh's loss to David Avanesian are frightening. Another strange experience in my boxing career. From my perspective, I take a talented fighter who's already beaten a former world champion on his up-and-coming career, who's got 10 wins to Wembley Arena to fight a former world champion, known for his toughness and his power. My fighter hurts the other dude in the second round and rushes in a bit like a novice, gets stunned a little bit. A few rounds later, I throw the towel in because my fighter's mentally and physically exhausted. What year is it? Yeah, absolutely. It's 2004 and 2021. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, they are eerie, the similarities. One thing I did wonder... in the aftermath of all that is when, how does your kind of, as a coach, how does your relationship with um, defeat sort of evolve down, down the years? Does it get easier to handle? Is it more difficult to handle or is it just, is it just different? You've had a lot of success, but when you're a trainer, the next defeat is, is in the post. You don't know when it'll be exactly. You haven't had that many, but it's going to happen. I mean, how does it, how do you, how do you yeah, handle the it? Hardest, the hardest time for anything is the first time. Once you've done something once, it's never as difficult, irrelevant of what it is. When David lost to Carl Thompson, it was, it was, I was, I was done with boxing, and so was he. All the people that were, all the, all the high-profile people that were criticising the sort of way along the journey and saying that, Personally, that I was going to be the reason that David failed, 
because I didn't have the experience or the knowledge or the ability or capability to take a young talent like that to the level the, the level that he could achieve. That after his loss, um, I personally felt a very public um, backlash. We didn't have Twitter and Instagram, so it could have been worse, but it was. And and David, I remember speaking to David a couple of weeks afterwards, and he was done. He, did, he didn't want to fight anymore. I think we had two fights left on the BBC, and he was going to do those fights, but he had he, he totally lost the taste for it. Um, his discipline in preparing for fights and, and, and living the life of a, of a real pro fighter wasn't there anyway prior to the Carl Thompson fight. Um, and it genuinely felt like, okay, well, this is probably the end of the journey. But in the next, in the subsequent two fights, his one, his next one after losing to Carl Thompson was against Valerie Simishku. And thankfully, David got rid of him in the first round because he was so out of shape for that fight. I've never, never known him to be that unfit and that out of shape. I remember taking his T-shirt off just before he went to ring centre after the ring announcements. As I lifted his T-shirt up, his gut went over the top of his shorts. And I remember thinking, oh my, I, never, I didn't think it was that bad. He had his hair out in a big afro to try and balance out the fact that his waistline was a little bit wider. And uh, hit Samishka with a left hook to the body in the first round. And, and, and we got out of dodge really quickly. So that was the first one. And the plan was always that that was probably going to be it. But then over the next few weeks, I could see that his flavor and the taste for training again had come back. And so of mine. Um, so the, 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 his last fight, the fight that he was planning to be his last professional fight, I made it against a dude that had fought Roy Jones called Glenn Kelly. Glenn Kelly? Glenn Kelly, I think, yeah. I keep saying, thinking Gene Kelly every time I say that. Glenn Kelly. Um, and Glenn Kelly was the right type of dude for David to fight because it was always going to be an easy fight for him. But for some reason, he had top 10 WBC ranking or top 12 WBC ranking. So I thought, then we'll definitely go for that dude because the BBC will buy it because he's got a world ranking. Now, all of a sudden, David's breezed through his last two fights, theoretically, having got a bit more of a taste for being a fighter in training and living the life and realizing that was how he was going to make his money to becoming world ranked. He became world ranked, not taking it seriously, effectively. And then from then, that's when the real evolution of David Hay and the Haymaker began. So the Carl Thompson fight broke him mentally as a fighter and the subsequent period where we kind of dollied it and, and made it easy for him to earn the money, through that period, he re he, there was a lot of realisation in himself. And from that point on, so it wasn't the, it wasn't, it was the Carl Thompson defeat that caused this process to happen. But it was after the fight against Glenn Johnson that he really started to become uh, the fighter that ended up having the success that he did. Matt, that's often the case, isn't it? It, it takes a it takes a setback uh, before you really start to maybe have a good look at yourself and and, and learn a, a few things. I mean, how 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 kind of shocked were you when you when you saw what happened between Hay and, and Thompson, or were you not shocked? Maybe I was. I, I wasn't particularly knowledgeable on boxing at that stage, to be honest. I, I knew, I mean, I knew all about Cole Thompson, but I kind of bought into the idea that he was 
a bit over the hill and past it. Um, but he was, I mean, he was a terrific fighter. Yeah, David, no, Dave, David and I both know why that loss happened. And it had to happen. He had to get his ass handed to him like that for him to feel the pain and the shame of not living the life. I'd never been in that situation before. And I can vividly remember standing in the, knowing how the preparation had gone. And this is, you know, you live and die as a coach. You should always live and die with your fighters. Never pass the buck. Always live and die with your fighters. Because ultimately, as a coach, your reputation's made by whether the fighters succeed or not. And that's how it should be. I remember standing in the ring. We'd done the ring entrance. There was some page three model that had got into the changing room and holding the flag and was doing the ring walk. And David was chatting to her on the ring walk. I remember thinking, this is all wrong. And I'm standing in the ring and Thompson gets in. And I'll never never forget the feeling I had consume me at that moment in time. I knew it was done because Thompson was sweating like a lunatic. He had this expression on his face. He was prepared to die in that ring to get that win over David. And knowing his toughness and his ability to absorb ridiculous amounts of punishment and how strong he was, I remember being consumed with this feeling at that point, thinking, oh, no, this is done. And then I had to fight that feeling because I still had the fight strategy and plan to get focused in. Um, And David has said and always has done that that was the best experience and lesson and sliding doors moment, whatever you want to call it. Because we always, he and I always used to say, those that don't listen must feel. And no truer than that part of David's K's career where it didn't matter how many different ways we spoke about things, the only way he was going to learn the lessons that he needed to learn was to feel it. And um, my word, he felt it that night. Yeah, I mean, I mean yeah, everything you said there, I, I, mean, I remember watching it and I, I don't know why I thought, I knew Thompson was soft, soft old pro, but I did think at that stage that David would just get him out of there. But what Adam's saying about learning the lesson, you know, it, it, you always pull things back to how would I feel? And I look back, you know, the Jamie Moore fight, the right, the fact that I went off like a lunatic and got overhyped and was, you know, put so much in early doors and eventually, you know, punched myself out. And obviously Jamie fought a smart fight. But if you look back at my fights going into that, that was always going to happen. The writing was, you know, I needed to learn that lesson. And it was all right talking about it with Billy Graham about don't waste in energy and input and output and all the rest of it. But until I felt that pain of that loss, how I felt afterwards, I never really took it on board because the fight, I've said this to you before, Andy, the fight prior to that, when I fought Scott Dixon, I almost punched myself out. Only I got him out of there. But let let me tell you, if he could have stayed in there another round, I was done. Michael Monaghan, I knocked him out in the fifth round. Another round, I was done. I punched myself. I tried to sprint the marathon and I kept trying to do it. And it wasn't until I tasted the pain after the Jamie Moore fight. That was when I learned to pace things a bit better. And, you know, it wasn't about being super fit because those fights that I nearly punched myself out in, I was super fit for those fights. No matter how fit you are, if you try and sprint the marathon, you're going to, you hit this lactose level and you just don't come back from it. And it wasn't until I tasted that defeat that I, you know, I took proper stock and, and learned to take things a bit slower. So 
you know what Adam's saying there about David Hay, it was, you know, I'm sure Adam was drumming it into him about the lesson prior to the fight. I'm sure he was constantly saying to him, listen, you've got to change. But it wasn't until he tasted that pain that he was, you know, that he could hear him. Hey everybody, this is Moto G Pete from the Nokomoto Motorcycle Podcast. Join us every week while we rate, review, ride, philosophize, and generally obsess over every single motorcycle make, model, and style that could possibly exist, plus news and racing. That's the Nokomoto Motorcycle Podcast from Moto One Podcast Network Studios. So just before we we kind of move things on a little bit further towards the, the, the Mormec fight. You, you said there, Adam, that you got, you know, you were under heavy fire after that, after that first defeat. And I guess, were you expecting it? Were you expecting it? Did you, did you always kind of know that because he was, he was the, the this celebrated amateur fighter, was your feeling basically that within boxing people were, were kind of not everybody, but people were maybe itching to have an excuse to, to throw you on the scrap heap. Um. Yeah, I knew I wasn't liked. That 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 I did know, and I didn't care. Um, and I think that's what I think that was the the sort of connection between David and I because there was twelve twelve years, we had twelve years difference, and I remember when I used to box and when I used to play football, I would never listen to the coaches because the things they said never echoed the visions and the imagination that I had. And I think David and I had that connection that we kind of saw things different, that we believed we saw things differently um, and weren't prepared to be held back by the tried and tested route of failure. I've always believed for a long time that this country's had fighters that could have been up there in world champions way before we started having numerous world champions. But the way that fighters trained, the way they moved, the rhythm they had, the, the skill sets that we encouraged, never matched the greats that I always used to watch on, on video and, and TV. So that's where David and my relationship, I think, was galvanized. And because of that attitude, we weren't liked. And because we weren't liked, we always knew that people would celebrate our downfall and that's us as a pair and also individually it's the way of the world it's what it's what uh it's what happens and um you have to develop a thick skin don't you as quickly as you possibly can and what i, what I realized what i realized and the one thing i think i say to every every fighter in my gym now is i asked them how would you feel if you're sitting at home you just had your tea you've done your training you're you're watching tv and some random dude comes into your house and starts saying that you're crap at this, you're ugly, you can't do that, and 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 you're gonna get, you're gonna look. You wouldn't take them seriously, but yet those people can come into our bedrooms or living rooms, numerous of them every day through social media. And it, it's the biggest lesson I think is to ignore the opinions of anyone that don't matter to you. Yeah, I'm, Adam, I'm, you know, Adam, talking there, I mean, I don't want to drift off and, and they'll pull me back if you do, but talking there, you said about the, you said it was almost uncanny similarities between 
Josh Kelly's fight with Avanesian and also David Haywood, Carl Thompson. Yeah, the statistics. You know, it's fair to say probably in some ways that was probably that loss was probably the making of David Hay. Yep. What do you do? You, where do you feel now with Josh? What do you th- what what do you think he needed to learn that he learned from the fight and moving forward? The reasons. So so statistically, there's a bizarre irony. For me personally, the, but the reasons behind behind each loss are completely different. Josh's loss has got nothing to do with his ability or his conditioning or his skill sets, and so the reasons why Josh has lost and the reason why David lost completely opposite. But statistically, when you look at the numbers and they had that many fight, David Hay beat Arthur Williams, who was a former world champion. Josh had beaten um, Carlos Molina, who was a former world champion. So it was uncanny. I throw the towel in the fifth round in one fight, the sixth round in the other, and it's bizarre. Um, can I tell you a little funny story? When I threw the towel in, so after the second round against Carl Thompson, David was finished. You know, you talked about lactic. It was in every part of his body. After the fight, I couldn't understand how it had gone to the fifth round, except Carl had taken such a shellacking that he didn't realise for a couple of rounds that he should actually put, put his foot on the gas. But at the point when I threw the towel in, I remember turning around and I, and I couldn't find a towel. And the only towel I had was soaking wet. And it, obviously in that moment, I just want to protect him. I want to stop the fight so he doesn't take that next, that next shot. So I've grabbed this wet towel and I've thrown it. Luckily, it went past the eye line of Terry O'Connor, I think was the referee. Because it was so wet, it shot straight out the other side of the ring and landed in the face of one of the, the referees sitting waiting to do a fight. I know it's literally, if you watch it, it goes flying out the other side of the ring. This time, when I really, again, you, as a coach, you always know what's, what the build-up to a fight is and you know what's going on in the fighter's mind. And when I realised I needed to throw the towel in, it was the same scenario. It was a soaking wet towel. <laughs> and I remember subconsciously, there was this thing that came, if you look, I actually sort of dolly throw it. You do, you lob it up. So he sees it because I was worried about the towel flying out the other side of the ring and him not seeing it. I just wanted to stop the fight and I ended up doing this sort of little netball throw with this wet towel. Yeah, you, you know, did. You kind of, you, you lobbed it up there like a flare. I noticed that at the time because it kind of arced into the ring and I think the referee might even have caught it or it landed on the ref and it was, it was, it was, it was, yeah, as you say, the similarities between those two. You, you said there that, you know, you, you're aware of the reasons why Josh, why Josh lost that lost that fight uh, I don't imagine that's something that uh, that you could share with us today um, but it's um, it's 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 obviously the key point is is being able to identify uh, those those reasons and just to go back to the social media thing because um, I was re-watching the thick of it the other day the political satire side ah, of it brilliant program uh, it's absolutely tremendous and and that was kind of before there's a point to this story people think there isn't but there is that was kind of before mainstream Twitter, Instagram, all that kind of thing. But in one episode, so Peter Mannion, who's the minister, his one of his kind of underlings says, oh, I've started a departmental blog where we can invite people in the general public to, to comment on, you know, what you're doing and stuff like that. And he just said, oh, don't do that. Don't do that. Or you're, you're opening the door to the shit room. You're just opening the door to a room <laughs> where everyone tells you how shit you are. <laughs> and that's it, isn't it? That's exactly what it is. That's exactly what it is. 
So the train really got back on the tracks, winning the, the European title. Um, you went to some fairly unglamorous locations on, on, on that kind of road back. Um, oh, disrespect, but they weren't... Um, it wasn't Las Vegas or Madison Square Garden and, and, and Wembley Stadium. Or the Playboy Mansion. Or the Playboy Mansion. But you got yeah, the European title and then came a fight in late 2006 against Jacob Fragomeni, which turned out to be the final defence of it because it made you mandatory for... The WBC. Um, Let me just say something about that. Matt, you remember that you uh, referred to a fight where David totally dominated this dude. It was Fragomeni. Yeah, 15 1, mm. I think it was. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. Like, if you look at the end of the first round or the second round, um, whoever was in David's corner tells David the, s- the score. And you see David tries to get up out of his off the stall in a panic because he can't believe he's being screwed. And they push him back down in the seat as if to say, shut up, son, and take the loss. And that yeah. was that was the fight against Fragomeni. Yeah, yeah. I remember, I, 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 I wasn't sure it was Fragomeni. That's why he didn't say his name. But now that you said it, I, I kind of remember that, yeah. Yeah. Well, when they met again in the pros, it was a, it was a brilliant fight. Uh, York Hall won by, by late stoppage. So show that he could carry that power late. It was just really, really good to watch. And... Uh, and then you were kind of waiting, weren't you? Because O'Neill Bell had beaten John Mark Walmeck to win the WBC, WBA and IBF in the January of 2006. And then they rematched in 2007 in March, by which point the IBF had disappeared. They, they stripped that belt was that belt was gone. But whoever won that fight was just so clearly the man in the division. Uh, and Walmeck won it. You stayed busy with uh, our 102nd Win at heavyweight the first Bonin. time you stepped up to heavyweight against Thomas Bonin. Thomas Bonin. That, that fight was taken. That fight against Bonin was taken at heavyweight, so as not to jeopardise the cruiserweight ranking. Yo, I'm DK, co-host of the One Star Recruits podcast. My best friend Rip and I host five-star athletes, celebs, business leaders, comedians, and coaches from around the world. Each week, I can guarantee you the show will always have great laughs catch up on life's in relatable ways and have a ton of fun we're recruiting you we are the one stars which means we can ask the questions that no other podcast asks to guests like joey chestnut evander holyfield bobby hurley jenny finch ryan lochte montel jordan new guests every week compelling interviews that you want to hear check us out wherever you get podcasts one star recruits clever I see. I see. If anything so had happened, busy. cut eye, broken hand, if anything had happened in that interim fight, if that fight had been under the cruiserweight limit, he would have been stripped of his mandatory position. So that's why it was a heavyweight fight. I always wondered about that because it kind of sticks out on the record. Is is I just wonder whether you were maybe kind of like testing the water, but I guess it was always a plan to make that make that step up. And so the fight was originally set for, for late September against Mormec. It was always going to be away in in Paris and he had the WBC and the WBA it ended up being in early November and you took yourselves off to Northern Cyprus for camp, which um, from Elliot's description sounds, you know, the, the heat and the, the dust and the mountains, it sounds like kind of Rocky Balboa type training, but it was a very difficult camp, wasn't it? Because things, well, you tell it, but things all was not well. And at one point, I'd imagine you were wondering whether you were even going to be in the corner against Mormec because you both flew, flew home separately, I think, about midway through and and no one really no one really knew what was happening. No, that's the worst actually not what happened. It was only me that flew back. 
Um, so the fight, the fight got delayed. We can't remember why, because it ended up being an 18-week training camp. And there's just David and me living in North Cyprus in a, in, a, in a little villa. We had a pool, but on top of each other. We didn't know anyone. Obviously, we made friends along the way. But it was just, it was just him and me and the sparring partners. Um, and like, like, you know, like any relationship, whether it's a friendship, uh, a couple, whatever it is, that you always get, when you spend that much time with someone, there's always going to be straining points. And that's the lesson I learned, a big lesson on this one, because there were, there were problems. Like David ended up with, uh, a, where we set the gym up, it was Rocky-like. It was a, a corrugated iron-covered shack where we, we installed some electrical cable, put some spotlights up, had a ring sent over and put the ring on, but everything was concrete, and then we had a little bit of carpet under where the punch bag was, and we welded a speedball to this metal frame that was sticking down. So it, that's exactly what it was like. It was roasting hot, but it was right next to a metalwork, little metalwork workshop. And halfway through training, David ended up with a little shard of metal in his eye. And it was a problem. And he had a patch on his eye for ages and, and it had to be treated to the point where it almost was, a, it started to get to the point where I, I was worrying whether we had to pull out. Luckily, it was okay. So training went on. And obviously the relationship started to get strained because we'd been on top of each other for so long. And there was a technical thing that I was talking about to David about how to, how to kick off to the right um, and not to do it where you remain in range because Mormek, Mormek's a leech who wants you to waste your energy. He'll leech distance and then jump forward with that left hook. And the way that David was moving to the right, he was going to be a sitting duck for that left hook because he was upright and in range. So there was this technical thing about how to kick step to the right where you take the distance out as you go off to the right. So if he tries to short left hook, yeah, it's always going to fall, it's always going to fall short. Um, and he wasn't doing it. And then we ended up having an argument about it. And I remember we're sitting in the car, parked out the villa, outside the villa, and I'm, say and I'm saying to him, if you don't want to do the things we're discussing, what do you want to do? How, how do you see this fight playing out? And he, he said to me, I'll just figure it out when I get in there. And I looked at him and I said, well, you know, you know that's not right. We went inside, must have been about 10 o'clock at night. I, I was awake all night. And we, there was this awkward atmosphere between us le leading up to this. And I was done. And I remember at four o'clock in the morning, I went to the airport and flew back to England and I didn't speak to him. and I didn't hear from him. We didn't speak to each other for two weeks. And it was a torturous two weeks because obviously we were friends as well as manager, coach, fighter. But this, there, there have been so many little straining points that this was the final straw. And, and, and the manner of the conversation that came out, it's not, it's, it's a lot, it's a lot more protracted than what I just told you. So I'm back in England. I didn't know whether he was training. I didn't know what was happening. Just didn't speak to him. I was done. And then, and it was my first, it was my journey for the first time as well. Remember, like I'd never, never taken a fight to a world title and a very, a very, you know, a very specific type of character we're talking about as well. And then it was, it was after a couple of weeks and there was only, so there would only been about four weeks of training left. 
I went back, went into the villa. He's there. I got back in the morning. Not a word passed between us. I've gone to my bedroom, unpacked. All day, we're in the villa or by the pool, not saying a word to each other. I can't begin to explain how fucking awkward that was. But I wasn't going to, I wasn't, I was, I, I was, as far as I was, I was righteous. And he obviously felt he was righteous, but it was weird. And then, and then he said to me about five o'clock, what time's training? And I just looked at him, I said, do what you want. And he said, seven o'clock. And that, but that was it. I didn't say, all right, I'll see you at seven. He said, we were still being arsy with each other. So that's it. Seven o'clock comes, he's gone to the gym. I didn't go. And at about eight o'clock, I'm sitting there, I'm thinking, it's hard to explain the level of confusion and uncomfortable thought process when you're doing this the first time. So I drove to the gym and he's in the ring, shadow boxing. So I went and sat down. And as I'm, as I'm sitting down, I'm watching him. He starts to demonstrate the technical point that we couldn't agree on before I flew back. And it was obviously, a, he was letting me know without saying it, he was prepared to listen. So I then said, I noticed he was doing this kick step off to the right, how, how we were talking about it. But it, there was something that wasn't quite right with it. So I've said, I said, when you do that, and as soon as the word when came out of my mouth, he stared at me. And I knew from that point that we were over that bizarre period of time. And from that point until the fight, it's never gone better in a, in a preparation for a fight. Matt, have you, have you ever had that? Not necessarily with you and your own trainer, if it hasn't happened with you and whoever was training you, or maybe you've been in the gym and witnessed it between another fighter and another trainer where it's just very strained and very awkward and nobody really knows what to say. Um, maybe not to that degree that Adam's describing there, but I've, but I've seen Ricky Hatton and Billy Graham, you know, I think I've seen it when things aren't working and then I've seen it click with them, you know what I mean? Uh, they, they had a very close relationship. We had Ricky from a, you know, an amateur 16, 17 years old. So they were very much in sync, as was Adam with David. Um, so that's probably the closest I've seen to what Adam was describing there. But I, <laughs> I was thinking about it as he was describing it. I was thinking, can you imagine the awkwardness of the silence? <laughs> oh, God, it'd just be... Painful. Oh. Oh God, so so painful. It, it, it chimes in with something though that I've been listening to quite a lot of stuff about and reading about recently. I've been listening to a lot of podcasts about about coaching. A few with um, a guy called Michael Lewis. Um, just starting to read a, this book called The Inner Game of Tennis with a guy called Timothy Galway. And basically, what it kind of talks about is that, as far as possible, there's a school of thought that as far as possible, coaches should allow athletes to try and figure things out for themselves. Um, particularly at kind of elite level where really they know what to do or they're capable of doing things, but you can't kind of browbeat them into doing what you think or know they should do because that won't work. You'll just get a clash. Is that is that kind of what happened? Were you convinced that your strategy was right? You just had to wait for him to 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 get on board with it but you knew you couldn't if you tried to ram it down his throat that wasn't going to work either well you you actually i think what you've just said covers two points Let, let's go back to the first one 
you are absolutely right. Coaching, let's talk about boxing. Coaching isn't about nice little pad work routines. That's just an exercise drill that keeps the fighter entertained and stimulated through a long, boring career of being a professional athlete. That's what pad work is. But it seems to be the only thing that people are interested in seeing these days. Coaching is about whatever you believe, the, whatever knowledge you want to impart, you need to get it across using as few words as possible. And in this sport, and in elite sport, the best make, these, make decisions subconsciously in fractions of seconds. Fractions of seconds. Now, if you give a verbal command that they hear and have to process, if you're telling them specifically what to do in the heat of the battle, it's going gonna, it's, it's gonna to take too long for them to process and execute. For example, I always, pay attention, I always pay attention to things that I hear other coaches say. And if I hear other coaches prescribing which punches to throw, I always think you've got a problem. Because if you're saying double jab right hand, or jab to the head, jab to the body. While the battle is going on, firstly, not only can the other fighter hear what you're telling him to do, but secondly, you're interrupting his subconscious. You know, and you know, you know, coaches and athletes always talk about being in the moment. That 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 incredible feeling when you're just doing, you're not thinking, and it's all happening subconsciously and instinctively. Instinctively, because you've drilled it and seen it so many times. But when it, a moment presents itself to you, your mind subconsciously knows how to react and you subconsciously make those decisions. It's not, oh, he's throwing his jab like this, so I need to dip down too late. You've just been hit four times. So absolutely, fighters, the most important thing a fighter has to be able to do is think for himself. Any elite athlete has to be able to think for themselves in the heat of the battle. As a coach, before a fight, you should have drilled and rehearsed all the scenarios that you believe may play out, good and bad, physical, technical, or emotional, or mental. So that as a coach, if you feel that you want to guide them slightly differently, rather than saying, do this, do this, do this, do this, and then do that, you have a phrase. It might be one word or two words. And that phrase triggers something you've done thousands of times already that they subconsciously react to. Do, do you understand what I'm saying? hundred percent. Like I said, I've said this loads of times. When 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 you're in the heat of the battle, think things just have to happen. It's already programmed into you, and then it's kicking that. It, it's it's like, as you have described it better than I can. It's it's then, you know, like if you've got to think about the shotgun, I'm going to slip this and throw that. You've missed it. It's gone. It's it's happened. You're talking absolute fractions of seconds. That's why people repeat drills. It's repetitions, repetitions. It's boring. It's mundane. But you're programming yourself into every possible eventuality of how you believe the fight could play out. And it could be plan A, B, C, D, E. And it's just making those adjustments. And it's switching from one to the other. So this, so if you if you want, I don't know drag this on too long but i think we've been on doing this for an hour now but i can tell you about the technical issue that there was about the mormek fight and that's that mormek was always going to want to look for that left hook right so how do you avoid a left hook you move to your left you move the other way but the problem is if you only go that way eventually all he's got to do is just keep stepping to the right and he's going to force you to be in front of the left hook so you, if you only do the one thing, it's easy. It's so easy for them to adjust to. So 
the, the, the drill we were doing was an, is an, a kickoff to the right where your, your left and right foot make the letter L. They draw the letter L. So you end up going out a distance and into the right rather than just going right or out a distance. So the command was L step. So if to stay away from the left hook and to stay away from the left hook, you've got to step to your left. But because David's a good right-hand puncher, he wants to be stepping to the right. He wants to be hitting that right leg. But loading up that right leg, where the way that Mormont would leach distance, it wouldn't be a straight right hand that David was looking for. It would be an uppercut or a hook, and then he'd be in Mormont's range. So if I felt that he was sitting in that distance too long, and then you could see Mormont trying to rev up that hook, I would really quickly shout L-step. And he'd kick off and step to the right. And all of a sudden, so Mormont would feel that this, it would start to feel distance was there for the left hook. And just as he would go to take it, it would be gone again. And he'd have to reset because David wasn't only going to the left. He was also going to the right. And as going to the right, he was in distance and then out of distance. So Mormont couldn't get set for his leaching hooks. The one time that he caught David with a left hook is when he was in a position where he couldn't go left or right because he was blocked in the corner. And that was the one moment Mormek was able to have success with the one shot that he knew he could try and turn that fight around with. We prepared for David to get knocked down in that fight as well because David wasn't scared about getting knocked down. He'd already been knocked down and stopped as an amateur. And, and he'd lost, uh, he got dropped by Lalenga Mok as a pro. He got stopped by Mormek. So talking about him getting dropped didn't, didn't damage his confidence. Some fighters, if you talk about them getting dropped and what you're going to do, they start to worry that, oh, you think they're going to lose because they're going to get knocked out. But David had that supreme confidence in himself where we could talk about what might go wrong. And that would only strengthen his confidence. And we saw Costa Zou doing a drill where he would do these roly-polies across the ring to make himself really dizzy. Intense forward rolls, backwards and forwards. And then he'd have to stand up and physically perform an action. And we did that in preparation for the Mormack fight where David would do roly-polies. As soon as he'd stand up, I'd let a volley of shots go that he'd have to defend. He'd defend really quickly, slide inside, pick me up, walk me across the ring, set me down, take one step back, and then be back on his game again. So mentally and physically and sort of neurologically, we tried to drill the fact that you might end up getting dizzied up in this one, but this is how you're going to come out of it because we're going to drill it, drill it, drill it. And if you look at the moment when he gets dropped by Mormek by the left hook, Obviously, it's our first world title fight. He gets dropped. I see his legs do this funny thing. My heart starts to sink, but my head's still in it. And I go to say something to him. But as I do, he was so comfortable, he just looked at me and said, I'm okay. Got up, got control of the round, shut it down, comes out of the next, start the next round and reestablishes his control. And it's, and it's one fight. It's the one fight I've probably learned the most as a coach in all aspects of how to deal with the emotional stresses of a difficult character and the intensity of training and falling out and leaving an injury and being the away fighter. And, and, and the atmosphere in the hall that night was dark as well. It was not a nice atmosphere. Prior to that, I'd already refused to take David to the venue because I got there early with the fellas we were with just to check out the change room. And they'd stuck us in no more than a cupboard. It was a cupboard. So I said, he's not coming unless you give us a proper change room. And all hell broke look. And remember, we're dealing with Don King's organization. So I'm on, I'm on my nerves end here because I've never confronted an organization like that with something like this before. But I'm saying he ain't coming. 
somebody referred to a lawsuit that would happen if their TV rights got reduced, if David was there late and wasn't able to... That, 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 those words, I remember playing out, but by that point, I was in it. And I'm saying, he's not coming. He's not coming. He's not coming until you give me a proper change room. And we're talking about a period of an hour. So now we're like an hour and a half before bandaging up. What happened? All right, so there's a door at the end of this cupboard that they'd stuck us in, effectively, as a change room. I went, what's through there? And they said, oh, there's nothing. And there was no key and the door was locked, but there was a key on this funny little hook. So I've got this key, unlocked the door, opened it. What was the other side of the door? A basketball court. In the space of 10 minutes, we ended up having a load of carpet put down on part of this basketball court. They bring David in and that's where we did our warm up on a basketball court that was the other side of a door that was in the cupboard where they wanted us to warm up in. The strokes that people pull, it's, it's when we're talking to Frotch about this fight against Jermaine Taylor, they didn't pick him up to take him to the venue. Then his dressing room was freezing. Then they kept him in the holding area for 20 minutes for no good reason. These are the things that, that happen. And it's that kind of preparation. Like you said, you went down there early and you could try and get to the to the bottom of it. As you said, the atmosphere in the in the arena was it was intense that that really did come through the tv there were there were three national anthems as well frank maloney up in the ring with you in his union jack suit i'd forgotten about him being being a part of it to me, to, to, i had i had i'd forgotten about him being a kind of part of your uh yours and david's story and um that fourth round as you described it there that's so interesting to hear because it gets cut, stuck in the corner the legs do go but he manages to get through it and recover and he came back and he came back strong in that in that fifth round. So I mean that usually when you see your man go down like that, and particularly with the way the, the legs reacted, that would be a cause for real concern. But but by the sound of it, it, it was kind of the opposite. Well, that wasn't the first time that David's legs had been buzzed, whether in sparring or a fight. So it's not the first time he'd felt that feeling. But it was the first time we'd felt it in a world title fight. But there were there were a few real clear little things that we did in that fight. One thing I looked at, one thing I was convinced of is that Mormack had quit in him. I was absolutely convinced of it because that style that he had wasn't a risk-taking style. It was behind that tight guard and let you use up your energy so that your mistakes give him his opportunity. Um, and also that he would win fights with very low punch output. Now... Obviously, in the back of David's and my mind is, well, how's he going to be over 12 rounds in a world title fight? So we came up with this plan to keep control of the first half of the fight using as few punches as possible. And I had someone in the corner with a punch counter. And, it, and I think in between, in, in between rounds, I think at one point you can hear him ask me, how many have I used? So we drilled a, a certain amount of punches every round, hard, sharp, technically perfect punches which require balance energy focus and stuff like that all the other energies that go beyond just throwing a shot out so that he knew that if he'd only used 35 in the round and he knew that he drilled 90 for the round that he was in credit subconsciously his confidence was in credit in terms of his own energy and that's what we did it was about controlling the first half of the fight using as few punches as possible because that's where Mormek would feel that a, a fighter known for his power early and known to fade later on in the fight would lose his power. And because Mormek was this leech type of style, it was like, let him start to really taste the power after the halfway mark. That way 
he can't come out of that shell. And that way, what he thinks he's going to get is going to be the opposite. And I, just it was just I, it was just a beautiful, sweet moment. The fact that he stops him in the seventh round, the round where we specifically set out to go and pick it up and start loading up on him. And you talked earlier about hooks and, and uppercuts being being the shots that would would do the damage, and and that was exemplified by the finish. It was it was a brutal finish when it came, and the uppercut he hit him with. It wasn't long into the seventh round. I, I give Mormek a lot of credit for staying up from that uppercut because it was an absolute monster of a shot. And then this big, wide, swinging right hook comes comes homing in and he just drops his left glove Mormek at exactly the right time and it collected him on the ear just round the back of the ear and the and the fight was the fight was over. Just just describe that kind of moment when you see those land. He goes down, he gets up, but you can see that the lights are just about on, but there's definitely nobody home and 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 you've done it. Well at the moment he's down, you're not thinking that. Especially like I said, it was David's first world title fight. And it was mine as a coach. And and it's surreal because you're just preparing for the fight that you forget, you kind of forget that it's a world title fight a lot of the time. Because you're just doing your thing. Um, David always has always had one of the most frightening heavy-handed uppercuts. The shot you talked about Odlani Afonso Solis, where David nearly knocks him out in the first round. That was a right uppercut. You look at how if you, you can go back through David's amateur career where he, he's put people to sleep with uppercuts and, it, and and the right uppercut played out a lot in his pro career. Um, when it, it happened quite quickly because I genuinely thought the fight was going to go into the last part of the fight. Um, it catches him with an uppercut and as it catches him, it twists his head and you can see that it hurt him. And the next one David threw was literally a heavy-handed thump to the side of the head, just as, just as if to say, just go down and stay down. And Mormet went down in front of where I was. And I remember looking, just staring at him. I was like checking David wasn't overexcited as he walked to the neutral corner. I remember staring at Mormek. And in my head, it was just stay down, stay down, just stay down, just stay down. And he got up. And as he gets up, you see him start to get up. You think, all right, the fight's carrying on. I then look towards David to see what his energy was and whether he had this reckless head on him. And as I looked at David and I quickly looked back and the referee had waved his arms and then it just becomes very surreal. Yeah, I mean, as I said, the conclusion when it came was fairly, was fairly swift. Uh, but, but Matt, that's what, that's what David Hay could do. That, that's what David Hay could always do. Will probably always be able to do until he's like 85 years old is, 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 is hurt people with, with that right hand. I mean, it was, it was, um, it was a massive, massive win. And as we said at the start, it's one that, that doesn't get probably the credit and the place in the pantheon that it, that it deserves. Yeah, ma- massive win, huge. But it's interesting hearing Adam talk there about, you know, limiting him to certain amount. Because David was known for being a massive banger early. But the, the only difference between being a puncher early and carrying your power into the later rounds is that you pick that lapso level and now you don't have the explosiveness because it, you've shut your, your bolt, so to speak. You know what I mean? It's, it's gone. So... Being conscious that this guy's going to try and drain you and look to come on, you need to be able to have that power late on in the fight because that's when you're going to get the openings. But then it's boxing with that discipline to not be your normal self and to unload and go for it and get excited and just to contain it so that when you do get the opening later on, when he does look to come, 
that's when you can nail him and have the power and to have that explosiveness still still within you. So, I mean, that was that, that was interesting. Hearing, but that's what happened basically. So, when, when you when you plan tactically a fight and it plays out and you get it right, you know, whether it's a world title or a six rounder, there aren't many things sweeter, is there? It makes you a bit of a smart ass know it all in your own mind's <laughs> eye until until <laughs> karma comes and slaps you back across the face again. <laughs> But I mean, on that on that kind of note, did um, did you was it kind of validation for you? Is that how you is that how you you saw it? Maybe in in the eyes of other people within British boxing. Now now you're older, you would think about things care. differently. I'm sure. I didn't care. I genuinely didn't care. I I oh I just I I've always tried to avoid absorbing compliments and praise. Because they they make the first thing they make me uncomfortable because I'm I'm naturally quite a shy person. So firstly, compliments and praise instinctively make me uncomfortable. So because I'm able to say thank you very much, but not absorb compliments, it's easy for me to totally ignore criticism. So I didn't care. I was just so happy that he'd done it, and that. It had, everything had gone the way it was. And for one of his smallest purses that he'd received to that point, by the way, people don't realise that David didn't get paid very much for that, that unbelievable risk that he took going to Paris, all because it was about big risk, big reward. And for someone so genetically gifted and heavy-handed and athletically talented, um, it, was, it was definitely the... Uh, it was definitely the right... I'm not saying that that's the right decision to make for all fighters and the business is different now as well but I think it was certainly the, the right choice well next up came the came the unification against Enzo Mack and then up to heavyweight and there were there were many more chapters in the in the story with with with, with the two of you we can't get into those today because uh, you've already been very generous with your time and I lied to you at the start I lied to everybody I get on this podcast I say it's going to take a certain amount of time and it's just <laughs> never ever true uh, but, <laughs> but, 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 but Andy, you're, you're right, and that—that that was the fight, though, where you rolled the dice. Like you say, big risk, big reward. So you're gambling, but you're backing yourself. You roll the dice, and then it's that win going abroad, not big money, blah blah blah. But that's then what set everything up after that. So it is that make or break fight in that sense. But we, but remember, we'd rolled the dice, and it didn't go our way with the Carl Thompson fight, and yet. You know, because ultimately it was always David's decision. He and I would speak until four o'clock in the morning constantly about these decisions. But it's ultimately, it was always ultimately his responsibility because it was his life and his career. He was the fighter. And so we'd rolled the dice in how we'd done it and the Carl Thompson fight happened. But well, I don't think you would have thought the Carl Thompson fight at that time was really rolling the dice. You know, no, what absolutely David, was, wasn't it? Absolutely, it was. It was because it was his tenth. He'd had ten pro fights, and and you know the rate that he had jumped to that level was quick. In hindsight, it was a roll of the dice. Yeah, At the yeah. time, you might yeah. be right. It's like, yeah, you got the skill set. Remember, I, I knew how the preparation for that fight had gone, so it really did feel like a, a roulette table. By the time we stepped in the ring, but you know, big every. Every fight, as, as a manager, as a fighter, as a coach, we're in professional boxing, which means you get paid. If you get paid, you've got to know what you're getting paid. And is the risk you're taking 
worth the reward you're going to get. That reward doesn't have to be short-term reward. Don't take the short change in, or, or the, the, the bigger purse now when you can take a much bigger purse later on down the line. And, um, and there's, there's, a, you know, there's a much bigger story to be said about the whole Satanta Klitschko era as well and, and how that just ended up working in David's favour. Well, but the, the, it's always seemed to me that the absolute key in being able to employ a long-term strategy is rock-solid self-belief in, in, in what you're doing. If, if you haven't got that, then then I can see why people might go for the the more short-term gains, things that look to be more within their reach. Um, but, but speaking of people who roll the dice, just before we wind this up, Dylan White's done that plenty of times over the course of his career in, in recent years. Uh, he's got this massive fight for him now for his for his future career against Povetkin on on Saturday night, we all know what happened at, at Maskell's in, in fight camp in, in August when he got knocked out by that merciless uppercut. How do you see this one going on on Saturday? It's at that level, everything's a must win, of course, but but a, a little bit like Anthony Joshua's rematch with Ruiz, maybe it really doesn't matter how this looks in any way, shape or form for Dillian White. He's, he's just got to win. Is that asking me? Yes, please. I think Dillian wins. I think Dillian wins for a few reasons. He is a risk taker and he is a bit fearless. He'll be cautious because obviously that's the second time he's been knocked out. But getting knocked out by AJ didn't stop him being a risk taker in his fights. So I don't see being stopped by Povetkin changing his character because I, I know Dillian since, since he was a kickboxer. I think that Povetkin looked empty before he detonated that bomb uh, in the first fight. So I do, I think, I think Dillian's got more fighting energy left in him than Povetkin has. And based on the fact that Dillian will be much cuter with how he goes about the job this time, I think Dillian will out jab him, slow him down, break him down gradually and get a stoppage. If it's not a quick one, because anything can happen in heavyweight boxing, my, my, my preferred prediction would be for Dillian in the second half of the fight okay okay well Matt with me and you will get more into this during the during the course of the of the week looking forward to it the rumble on the rock they brought out a two pound coin with uh with Dillian White's head on it I think as uh as a commemoration for the for the fight which um I've never heard of that before I'm, I'm all over that uh so we'll see how that one plays out Adam thanks very much uh for your time uh, it's great to catch up always really enjoy talking to you uh, and we'll see you again soon, hopefully. And everybody else, thanks for listening. Uh, keep tuning in. Plenty more to come this week. As I said, if you can give us a rate and review, that would be magic. And we'll catch you again soon. I'm the right babe, not that Maggie. Back in town, I said Jenny Diver. Whoa, Suki Tawdry. Look out to Miss Lottie Linya and old Lucy Brown. Yes, that line falls on the right babe, not that Maggie's back in Podcast Network.
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.